You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we are this morning. Today is our last installment on our study of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Next time we will be back in Matthew for good, all the way to the end of the book. But there is a section here that we had to deal with in order to say that we have dealt with every section of Scripture that would address the subject. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning and this evening, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 16. So if you're visiting with us, we are normally in the Gospel of Matthew on Sundays. But when we got to Matthew 19, took a few weeks to talk about this subject. Jesus addresses it there in Matthew 19, but we needed to expand out our vision a bit and ask what does the Bible teach as a whole on this subject, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we read beginning at verse 10. We'll read down to verse 16. Paul writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, She must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, our focus this morning is on verses 10 and 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for this glorious morning. It's such a joy to be with brothers and sisters giving our thanks for the amazing grace that you have shown us in your Son, for the new life that you've given us in Him, to give you thanks in the form of worship and singing and in the study of Your Word. Lord, we worship You now around Your Word. I desire that my preaching would be an act of worship, and I desire that our listening would be an act of worship. We rely on You in this next hour. Lord, You must do Your work, both in the preaching of the Word and in the reception of it. You must do Your work in our hearts, and we ask You for this, and we trust You for this. We pray for those hearing me who 
are not yet yours, we pray that you would save even this day. That in this realm of practical consideration, faithfulness to the marriage covenant, there might even in this realm be revealed the need for salvation. And I pray that you would save. But we gather as the saved, we gather as your people, and we need to be fed, we need to be encouraged, we need to be corrected, we need to be instructed. Lord, would you do everything that you've designed preaching to accomplish in this next few minutes? We desire that what we do in this next hour would please you and would be good for us. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is answering questions. Questions that he had received from the Corinthian congregation in the form of a letter. If you look at the first verse, he writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Concerning the things about which you wrote. They have sent him some questions. And he begins to walk through item by item the things that they had asked about and to give authoritative apostolic instruction about those issues. What is revealed as you begin to walk through what he answers is that the Corinthian congregation was not just in need of instruction, they were in need of correction. They were engaging, some of them were engaging in behaviors that did not accord with the truth, and Paul corrects this. What also emerges when you look at what he's answering is that humanity has not changed. The types of problems that he's addressing in this chapter are the very same problems we're dealing with today. This is one of the great myths that human beings want to believe about themselves, that somehow because there have been advancements in technology, the source of, of change that occurs when knowledge builds upon knowledge generation after generation, that somehow because we have made progress maybe in medicine or in technology, that there's been a fundamental change in human nature. And that's not true. People remain the same. If we could transport us back 2,000 years and we were sitting in a congregation in Corinth, we would find that we're meeting with the very same kinds of people. I mean, languages change, cultures change. Living conditions change, but people don't change. We would be meeting with the very same kinds of people we're meeting with this morning. As a result, pastoral ministry hasn't changed. What is Paul doing in this chapter? He is shepherding God's people. He is giving them the Lord's answers for their needs, for their questions. That hasn't changed. What was going on in Corinth is... The church was suffering in many areas from worldliness. They were being affected by their culture, and it was showing up even in the church, in the way they were living. And when that happens in the Lord's church, in some ways it's even worse than worldliness, if I could say it that way, because what happens is you end up looking like the culture, thinking like the culture, behaving like the culture, but with your own unique brand of spirituality mixed in. It is living like the world, but in the name of Jesus, which is very ugly. What emerges is the fact that some people were trying to practice celibacy in marriage in the name of commitment to God. Some were trying to get out of their marriage 
in the name of commitment to God. And everybody was impacted by these kinds of choices. Something acknowledged through all of his instruction here is that divorce is one of those tragedies in a sin-sick world, in a fallen world, that believers cannot escape. We wish we could say today that none of us have been affected by divorce, but we all have been. Every one of us has been. Some have experienced the pain of divorce in your own lives, but we all know someone who has been divorced, someone we love, someone we care about. We've all seen the tragic effects of unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. And the church at Corinth was no different. And so when they submitted to Paul their questions about all sorts of issues, wanting to know what the will of God was for these issues they were dealing with, one of the issues was the question of divorce. And so what we have in verses 10 through 16 are answers that Paul gave to their divorce questions. Now before we study his answers, there's something everybody in this room has to agree on if we believe the Bible. We have to agree about this because the Bible says this verbatim. And that is, God hates divorce. Even if you've experienced the pain of divorce, you have to admit, God says in His Word that He hates it. Malachi 2.16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I find that very interesting. Not only does God say that He hates divorce, but then He warns His people. And He warns them not first about their behavior, but about their heart condition. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Knowing that our God hates divorce, you better watch over your heart. You better watch over your heart. What is sad for our day, for our time, is that though God is clear that He hates divorce, the church, it seems, has gone mostly silent on the subject. Most churches deal with the subject of divorce as if it's just an unavoidable reality. Regrettable, of course, sad, of course, but hey, it's just a part of living in the world. And so we just accept it almost without commentary. And in addition, remarriage is just assumed. Divorces happen, remarriages happen. Yes, the Bible says that God hates it. Yes, Christ had things to say about it. Yes, the New Testament has things to say about it, but... We don't talk about it much because it's an uncomfortable subject and it's a reality in a sin-sick fallen world and we just sort of move on. We must not do that. Every part of the Word of God is good for us. Every part of the Word of God is necessary for the people of God. We dare not ignore what the Bible says about anything. So what does the Bible say about this subject? And are we willing to hear it? 
Malachi says, watch over your spirit. Okay, are we willing to soften our hearts, watch over our hearts so that we hear what the living God says about this subject? What our God says to us, His people, about this subject? The instruction Paul gives us here addresses two questions. We'll deal with the first one this morning. We'll come back and deal with the second one tonight. Two questions. Number one, what about divorce between believers? A believer married to a fellow professing believer. What about divorce between believers? Second question, what about a believer married to an unbeliever? What about divorce where you have an unequally yoked marriage, a believer married to an unbeliever? God, what is your will about divorce when it comes to two believers? What is your will about divorce when it comes to a believer married to an unbeliever? These are the two questions Paul addresses. This morning we focus on the first one, divorce between believers. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. But to the married... I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Parenthetical thought here. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Why do I say that he's addressing Divorce between believers. Well, because, notice how he begins verse 12. But to the rest I say. So now I'm dealing with another group of people. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother, this is a believer, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman, that is a believing woman, who has an unbelieving husband, so now as he moves to the rest, he's talking about believers married to unbelievers. So what is the first group? The group is a believer married to a fellow believer. What is God's will concerning divorce when you have two professing Christians? Now a few things I want to say about what Paul writes here. I think are very important for us to have in our minds. First of all, I want to say what we have here is binding truth. Paul uses interesting language here, doesn't he? He says in verse 10, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And then he says in verse 12, to the rest, I say, not the Lord. And on he goes giving instruction. What I'm saying is not me, it's the Lord. Next statement, it's, it's not the Lord, it's me. Some have tried to understand that as if Paul is, is just giving counsel, just giving advice. When he moves to the second subject, I don't believe that's what he is saying at all. Rather, what he's saying is, in verses 10 and 11, what he's giving to us is what the Lord Himself gave when He was here on the earth. We have Jesus... During his earthly ministry, this is his teaching on this subject. This is not I, this is the Lord. This is what Jesus already taught. Second subject matter, 
believer married to an unbeliever. Jesus did not address this when He was here on the earth. So this is new revelation. This is additional revelation. Paul is not denying that what he's writing are the very words of God, words that are God-breathed, the product of the Spirit of God, inerrant words, authoritative words. He's not denying that at all. He is simply distinguishing between something we already have on record versus something that is new, new instruction. And so when he talks about what he does in verses 10 and 11, he's giving us something Jesus already taught about. And we need to remember and recognize that wherever the Word of God speaks, it speaks with authority. This is not just counsel. This is not just advice. This is truth straight from heaven, straight from the throne of God. How many here this morning believe that the Bible is not just inerrant, it is not just sufficient, it is authoritative? If you believe that, would you say amen? Uh, What does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean every day for our lives? That it has authority. It means that wherever God's Word has spoken, the conversation is over. It means that it rules over our lives. It means that where God has spoken, you and I are to bow the knee. That's worship. Submit. Is Jesus really your Lord? Is He your Lord? Is He your Master? Is He your King? Is He your God? Where Scripture speaks, it's settled. We need to hear that because we're living in a world where nothing is binding. Everything is up to the individual. We're living in a world that believes that truth is determined by each and every individual mind. Well, that's your truth, but I have my truth, and that's what you think, but here's what I think. And and we can not really know anything for certain, can we? I mean, it's all a matter of opinion and preference. And if that works for you, I'm happy for you. It just doesn't work for me. This is the world you're living in. Corinthian church being influenced by its culture. Well, the church of our time is being influenced by that mindset. That there's nothing that is really final, nothing that is really authoritative, nothing that my will must be submitted to. Where I have to say no to myself, to my flesh, to my inclinations, and say yes to what God has spoken. That's the world you're living in. And that is the worldly church that is all around us. As if whatever God says is now up for debate. Sort of like Eve, you know, right there in the garden. Did God really say, you will not surely die? And Eve reasons outside of God's revelation and looks at that tree that was forbidden by God and sees what she thinks appeals to her. And Adam follows the voice of his wife. And here we all are in a world under a curse as a result. 
because they didn't take God at His Word. So, right away, I just want to remind us, God gives us truth. That truth carries the force of command. And what God has commanded is not up for debate. So even though Paul is using this language, I say, not the Lord, the Lord. I say, but not I, the Lord. He's not talking about opinion. He's not talking about advice. He's simply distinguishing what was already on record versus that which is now being given in the form of new revelation. Jesus did not deal with it. Second thing I want you to notice about what he says. Therefore, what he's saying to us is, in verses 10 and 11, this is the teaching of Jesus. To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. This is the teaching of Christ. This is Paul's representation of the teaching of Jesus on divorce that we have in the gospel accounts. I want you to remember that as these writers put together the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they made use of material. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in a consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught." Paul had information available to him. Some of it perhaps in written form, some of it passed on orally, some of it even perhaps given by the Lord directly, so that he is able to, to give to us what Jesus taught on this subject. And that's what he's saying, that what he's giving us here is what Jesus taught on this subject. Now, what's interesting is, and this is the third point I want to make, Binding truth, authoritative truth, Paul represents it, verses 10 and 11, as the teaching of Jesus. Third thing I want you to notice then, this is instruction against divorce. There is nothing permissive in what he communicates about divorce. This is against divorce. Two different Greek words used to refer to divorce in verse 10, the wife should not leave, karizo is the word, separate is the idea, should not separate from her husband. And then he says in verse 11, the husband should not divorce, aphiomi is the word, send away his wife. It is plain he's talking about divorce in both cases because he says of the wife in verse 11 that if she does leave, Making clear, he's not just talking about separation. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So in both cases, he's saying the wife should not divorce her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Paul says that Jesus taught no divorce. And if you listen to what our Lord taught in Matthew, Mark, Luke, it becomes clear that's where his emphasis was. We spent a lot of time looking at that. Where is the emphasis at in Matthew 19? It's not on divorce. It's not on remarriage. It's on maintaining marriages. Matthew 5.31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you 
that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, 3, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is there any reason to divorce her? Verse 4, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And if they had not followed up, that's the end. That's the end of the statement. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, porneia, and marries another commits adultery. Mark communicates the Lord's teaching with these words, and Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So... They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. No exception in Mark's account. No mention of porneia. Same is true in Luke, Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. No mention of porneia, sexual immorality. And you'll notice in our text that when Paul passes on the teaching of Jesus on this subject, he does not include the exception clause. There is no exception given. And if we ask, in my view, if we ask, why is there no exception mentioned in Mark? Why is there no exception mentioned in Luke? Why is there no exception mentioned in Romans, where Paul uses marriage and divorce as an illustration of salvation? Why is there no mention of the exception in 1 Corinthians 7? Why is there no mention of the exception anywhere else in the New Testament? The answer is it had a Matthean purpose. It has to do with Jewish marriage customs. And that what Christ was talking about wasn't after the, the marriage had become official anyway. It was unfaithfulness during the time of engagement. It was unfaithfulness during the time of the betrothal, which is why he doesn't use the word for adultery. He uses a more general term for sexual immorality in general because what would have happened during betrothal was not adultery. It was unfaithfulness to the marriage contract. This preserves the justness of what Joseph considered doing with Mary, the mother of our Lord. You can read about that. I won't take the time, but Matthew 1, 18 through 25 
Paul here is dealing with a predominantly Gentile congregation. The betrothal period that was true with Joseph and Mary and in Jewish life was not lived out in this culture. Therefore, the exception clause would have no bearing upon what he's teaching. This also, the Gentile culture that he's addressing, shows up in the fact that he is dealing with wives first. But to the married I give instructions not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then almost like an afterthought, and that's true with the husband too. The husband should not divorce his wife. Why does he put such an emphasis on wives in verse 10 and 11? Andrew Corns, he's written a very good book on divorce and remarriage. He had this to say. He said, this is all the more noteworthy because women in Jewish society could not directly divorce their husbands. They could only get the courts to arrange their divorce and then only in a few circumstances. In Greco-Roman society, it was possible for a woman to divorce her husband. Seneca has a splendid passage on this, quote, "'Is there any woman that blushes at divorce now that certain illustrious and noble ladies reckon their years not by the number of consuls, but the number of their husbands, and leave home in order to marry, and marry in order to be divorced?' I mean, there is an indication of how common it had become for wives to divorce their husbands. Corns goes on to say, this leaves us wondering why Paul majors so heavily on the wife and adds the husband almost as an afterthought. The reason may well be that it was the women especially who were saying that sexual relations were to be avoided, close quote. I would differ on the conclusion he draws. I think it may be that he addresses the woman first because this was becoming so common. So why no exception clause? Because it only applies during the betrothal period. It would not apply in what Paul is envisioning here in Greco-Roman culture, which means that he interprets Jesus to teach no divorce. Why does God hate divorce? He hates divorce for two reasons. One, because it involves the mistreatment of another human being. I mean, if we're talking about divorce that reflects hard-heartedness, the kind of divorce that Jesus warns about. Moses allowed this because of your hard-heartedness, the kind of heart condition Malachi warns about. Watch for your spirit as you don't deal with another person treacherously. How many people are divorced through tears. I don't want this. But the person goes on anyway. What is that? That is a mistreatment of an image bearer of God. God hates it for that reason. But He also hates it because it's an attack on everything He means for marriage to be and everything He means for marriage to portray. Marriage is meant to speak about something greater than marriage. Marriage is meant to picture something greater than marriage. John Piper wrote this, Jesus demands that husbands and wives be faithful to their marriages. He does not assume this is easy, but He teaches that it's a great thing because marriage is the work of God Himself, right? What God has joined together. Piper says, marriage 
is the work of God Himself, whereby He creates a new reality of one flesh that surpasses human comprehension and portrays to the world in human form the covenant union between God and His people. Marriage is sacred beyond what most people imagine because it is a unique creation of God, a dramatic portrayal of God's relation to His people and a display of God's glory. Against all the diminished attitudes about marriage in our day, Jesus' message is that marriage is a great work of God and a sacred covenant breakable only by death. Only by death. So this is binding truth. This is authoritative, what we have in verses 10 and 11. Paul represents it as the teaching of Christ Himself. This is what our Lord teaches about this subject. And there's no exception included because it didn't, in my view, it didn't apply. And what He teaches clearly is not to divorce your spouse. The wife should not divorce her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Anybody hearing me today considering divorce? Are you hearing the living God? Don't divorce them. Fourth thing I want you to see. However, the instruction acknowledges that divorces happen. The instruction acknowledges that divorces happen. We cannot skip by the parenthetical thought in verse 11. But if she does leave, which would mean she divorced her husband, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now this is crucial. How do we understand Paul's words here? If she does divorce him, if she does leave, because we know Read 1 Corinthians. Read 2 Corinthians. We know Paul was not reticent when it came to sins being disciplined in the life of the congregation. If someone is sinfully pursuing a divorce, they should be disciplined, as is true with any sin that someone just pursues with a hard heart. Yet what's envisioned in verse 11 is not the disciplining of this woman, Rather, some, choice, excuse me, excuse me, some choices that she has to make if this is the course that she's on, namely remain single or else be reconciled to your husband. So what's going on here? I'll say it to you this way. Is Paul saying something like this? Now, God commands you not to do this, but if you decide to set aside His command, then here's how you should handle it. Does that sound like Paul to you? God commands this, but if you just decide to set it aside, okay, then here are your options. Is this a concession to a cavalier attitude about the commands of God? I don't believe so at all. Say, so, well, then why is it there? And why is there no discipline mentioned? Because I don't think he's speaking to someone who wants a divorce who desires a divorce, who's pursuing a divorce. I think what he's speaking to, and I understand this, I think more now than ever, 
after all these years in vocational ministry, I know the men who shepherd the church along with me here know this as well because of what we've had to deal with even in this congregation. We live in a sin-sick world in which our best desires to maintain a marriage, our greatest efforts to maintain a marriage sometimes are met with failure. That is, we, we are doing our very best not to have a divorce, and yet to keep from a greater evil, divorces happen. Believers married to people who say they are believers, but you have extreme physical abuse. Married to people who say they are believers, but they abandon their family in the realm of financial needs, sometimes even personal presence. They just leave their family. What is a wife to do? To take care of herself and to take care of her children. What does she do? Unrepentant, hard-hearted, persistent adultery. Men who continue, because we're envisioning now what a wife is doing in verse 10 and 11. Men who continue in sexual sin, despite being confronted with their sin, no repentance that proves to be lasting. They continue in their sexual infidelity. What is a wife to do? Abandonment of the marriage for unnatural sexual activity, homosexuality. What is a wife to do? A wife, children in dangerous situations due to illegal activity, drug involvement. What is a wife to do? So there may be times when there's no desire for a divorce, every desire to keep your marriage covenant, but because of this sin-sick world we're living in, it proves to be untenable. To stay would result in even greater damage. In other words, get this, this is very important. I believe what is envisioned here is a divorce that doesn't reflect hard-heartedness. See, that's the standard Jesus dismissed. That's the standard that is not true for Christians. We are not people who live according to the standard of hard-heartedness. So this would be a divorce that does not represent hard-heartedness. But amazingly, even if you meet with something like that, the wife has two options. If she divorces her husband, then she must remain single, unmarried, or be reconciled to him. Paul does not teach she's free to remarry. Rather, she's to remain single. And he says, remember this, again, I want to keep underscoring this. He says he's just repeating the teaching of the Lord. And I pointed this out when we were in Matthew 19. I think one of the great proofs that we have this right is that when Jesus gave his teaching about divorce and remarriage to his disciples, they were shocked. They already knew the teaching of Shammai teaching of Hillel. They had heard this stuff before, but when they heard Jesus, they said, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to get married. You're talking about one shot at this. You're talking about one man with one woman for life. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. 
Again, Piper says this, through marriage, God fills the earth with mostly unwitting witnesses to the relationship between Him and His covenant people, right? Through marriage, especially talking about godly marriages, the world is witness to God's love for His people, God's relationship with His people. Piper goes on to say this, this is one of the main reasons that divorce and remarriage are so serious. They tell a lie about God's relationship to His people. God never divorced His wife and married another. Let me just stop here and insert a thought. I know there's the Old Testament language about God divorcing Israel. Can I just encourage you? Because I've chosen this time. I'm not, the first time I did this over 20 years ago, I spent a lot of time answering objections and going over situations that people have questions about. So if you have any of that, please just go back. It's all online. I think it was 2002 that we did this. Uh, and, and all those things I, I address. I didn't want to do that this time. Today is the last day we're dealing with this. We're going to go on in Matthew next time. But Piper says this, and I believe he's factually correct in what he says. God never divorced his wife and married another. There were separations and much pain, but he always took her back. The prophet Hosea is a testimony of God's radical love for his wayward spouse. God never abandons his wife and when he has to put her away for her adulterous idolatry, he goes after her in due time. This is what marriage is meant to portray, God's invincible and gracious commitment to his covenant people, his wife. Don't divorce your husband. But if due to extreme circumstances, untenable marriages, you must do it, then you either remain single, or if the Lord changes his life, you're reconciled to him. And he adds at the end of verse 11 that the standard is the same for the husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Binding truth. Christ already on record about it. No divorce. But we do live in a world in which sadly divorces happen. So if it happens, no remarriage until the death of the spouse. You remain single or else you are reconciled to them. Why does Jesus give an exception? In Matthew, why does Matthew record the exception that Jesus gave? Because it related to Jewish people. It had a Matthean purpose. Related to the betrothal period. But everywhere else in the New Testament, you don't find it. You don't find it because it doesn't apply. You say, what if there's already been a failure? I didn't grow up in a church hearing these things and I didn't want a divorce, but it happened and now I'm remarried. Or maybe it happened before I was born again and maybe I've been married two times, or three times, or four times, or five times. Maybe I'm like the woman at the well. Jesus said, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. What do I do? You thank God for His grace and mercy is what you do. We have all... We all look back at our lives and we see things that I didn't know or I disobeyed. I knew and I disobeyed. If the Lord should mark iniquities, nobody stands. If not for the mercy and grace of God, we all perish. 
We sang about it this morning. With hearts, my heart was full of joy. Oh God, Your amazing grace. And so what do you do? You acknowledge where you failed and you thank God for His forgiveness in Christ. But I'll tell you what we never do. We never stand at the precipice of a decision and know that what I'm about to do is wrong and then presume that God will be merciful to me on the other side of this sinful decision because I tell you, brothers and sisters, sin still wreaks heavy casualty on this side of eternity. If you think you and I can just go on in sin and it has no effect on us and on others, that you can deal treacherously with others and God will just wink at it, you will be proven sorely wrong. I can point you in my own circle of relationships to lives and families devastated by just going on when they knew they were wrong. Thank God for the shed blood of Jesus that answers for all of our sins. But where we meet with the truth... There we must walk. This is what Paul, in fact, says to wrap up this section. We'll deal with the, the other part of it tonight, but look at what he says in verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to become Circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And on he goes. What's he saying? You walk in truth where you meet with it. Where the Lord saved you, now walk with Him. The same is true on this subject. We can't go back and undo what we've done, but what we can do is move forward. What will be our standard moving forward? What will we teach to the next generation? What will we teach to our children and our children's children? That is what is at stake. And so if you are contemplating a decision that violates the truth of God, oh, brother, sister, stop. Don't, don't step off the cliff. Obey the Lord. The Word of God has authority. And then glory in God's mercy and His grace. Go on and live for Christ. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy, your grace that is super abundant. Every believer in this place, we can say that where our sin abounded, your grace has super abounded. I thank you for the many men and women in this church who are godly. They love you. They serve you well. And they have experienced the pain of divorce and your mercy even in remarriage. But Lord, let that 
not be the standard for us. Let it be what you teach us. And then, Lord, let us glory in your mercy despite our failures. Thank you, Lord, for the sufficiency of Scripture. Not just authoritative, it's what we need. It's all we need for life and godliness. And Lord, may we then give our hearts and minds to it in a way that is soft, not hard-hearted, but watching over our spirits so that we would not deal treacherously. Bless this word to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.